0: It's subspace radio time. It is me, Rob, and joining me is... Kevin! It is time for another delve into the world of Star Trek, animated as we go into the most recent episode. Star Trek, Lower Decks, Season 4, Episode 7, A Few Badgies More. And that's one of the more easier episodes to pronounce in, in this season, Kevin.
1: Yes, and yet another cross-genre reference. This is a reference to A Few Dollars More. I don't know if the story of this episode has anything to do with the story of that classic film.
0: There is no connection to the Spaghetti Western classic that is A Few Dollars More.
1: Memory Alpha tells me A Few Dollars More was a sequel to A Fistful of Dollars, which had already had its title ripped off by a Star Trek episode, A Fistful of Datas, in The Next Generation, Season 6, Episode 8. So it's continuing the tradition of mining that movie franchise for Star Trek titles, if you will. But
0: we had no A Fistful of Badgies.
1: Not a lot of Western flavor in this episode either.
0: No, not much at all. This was the episode where we had the return of villains. Not just one, not just two, but three. Three villains, count them three, coming together in a way of bringing chaos into the Federation, into the lives of our characters. We have Badgie back, as mentioned in the title. We also had uh, Peanut Hamper and Agamus. We had Mr. Jeffrey Coombs himself returning in voice form. And we know whenever Jeffrey Coombs is in Star Trek, it is elevated to something special.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just one Jeffrey Coombs, though. I feel like that's a baseline at this point. It's when you get two <laughs> or three Jeffrey Coombses that it starts to get really good.
0: Yeah, I was thinking more and more about the fact that when we reviewed last week's episode and the fact that you brought up they had to use Iggy Pop as a Vorta because they couldn't have had Jeffrey Coombs. And I'm there going, <laughs> and you brought it up, and I went, yeah, they could have done some massive split-screen stuff. Imagine Brunt and Weeun in the same episode. That would have Imagine. made the magnificent Ferengi... Even more Magnificent. (laughs) I can't get it out of my head now.
1: Yeah. So I am going to, I'm going to dare to uh, assume that you did not enjoy this episode as much as the Magnificent Ferengi, but how much did you enjoy or not enjoy this episode?
0: Yeah, it's, it's an odd one. I was under the impression that we were going to have like a Legion of Doom type axis of three evil, axis of evil. sort of like all three, but it was very much a story split in two fronts. And yeah, I've never been the biggest fan of Badgie. I haven't really liked Peanut Hamper, and they, as they have no character development at all, so yeah. there. I was still a bit suspicious, even at the end of the episode, going, "What's the con here?" I did feel like I was very much in a 1920s or 1930s gangster. Yeah. What's the gag? What's yeah, the con yeah. here, boys? But yeah, the just the range and the depth and the exquisite theatricality that Jeffrey Coombs brings to a voice performance does help incredibly. And there were some wonderful revelations about our arc at the end, which was particularly exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I am in a similar place with this episode of, I didn't laugh out loud at any point in this episode. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a, a chuckle more than a laugh. It was kind of, I see what you did there comedy rather than surprising and delighting comedy. Yeah. I also felt like this suffered from a problem that we sometimes get in Star Trek, where the plot of this episode kind of happened to our characters, rather than them being active participants in it. The most active that our cast got in this was Rutherford's attempts to talk down Bajia boy the Drukmani ship. And he did succeed in splitting him into some interesting parts But in the end, did that actually amount to any outcome that we could credit Rutherford with? I don't think so. Like in the end, what happened is Badgie got exactly what he wanted and evolved beyond his vengeful desires and solved his own problem. Yeah. And that's that's also what happened on the other front of faking out the parole boards in order to... Hatch a plan to overtake a planet somewhere. In the end, they both decided not to do it. And all that our characters provided was a lift to the end of the episode in a shuttlecraft.
0: Yeah. The cardinal sin for me was that it made our lead characters incredibly gullible, especially mm. like Tendy and, yep. and Boinla, who kind of, yeah, Boinla was quite suspicious and Tendy as well, but then they immediately just fell for it. And the gag about going from red to blue was a very, very thin gag.
1: Yeah, it is a certain kind of comedy where you're like, okay, so the comedy is our characters, which we like most of the time, are stupid this week.
0: Yeah, very much. They really took away all the hard work about how intelligent they are, and also they just and against their better judgment at the start, which they mentioned, they just yeah. immediately bought it. Also, the stakes were quite low. Despite the fact that we saw a lot of Easter eggs of when Badgie had full connection with all that, there was the Easter eggs ago, oh, there's that ship. Oh, there's that class. Oh, there's yeah. that station. But particularly with the second one, we had Artemis take over a planet where he did it like in, almost instantaneously. And yeah. Boynley gives a throwaway line about, you know, the, the Federation could get it back to the way it was, in you know, unless, yeah. yeah. And you, <laughs> so you're there going, there are no snakes. And so yeah. was, the gag was there at the expense of any tension or drama or believability yes. because uh, uh, as you said the intelligence of our characters were pretty much just taken away from them to make some big plot leaps
1: i think they they telegraphed the elements of this episode so much that they had to do it like yes the computers in the prison laughing maniacally at the end of one episode you're like okay well they they have to come back right And we had seen in the season finale of season three, Rutherford's implant getting tractor beamed off screen with Badgie on the screen. You're like, okay, Badgie's going to do something next season, Mm. right? And so they had all these things. And I I guess it would have been particularly frustrating as a writer to go, oh, we must pay off these elements, but we don't actually have a satisfying story to tell here.
0: There's a lot of retracing of plot steps that we've seen before so we right. had different versions of Badgy, so Logicy and guji even in lower decks we had two different rutherford rutherfords we've had brett spiner go up against brett spiner we've had multiple incarnations and this is just within the modern within the last couple of years mm-hmm. of star trek and they're repeating themselves in that way yeah for me it was yeah it was a lot of old tropes and a lot yeah. of The things we had to... Were sacrificed just to hit some plot points. But that plot point was a generic plot anyway that's been done multiple times before, so...
1: We've been saying earlier this season that we love strong, self-contained episodes, and it's okay if they contribute to something, to an ongoing story that we will get a payoff for eventually, but the most important thing is that the episodes themselves carry their weight. Yeah, And this to me, is an apt counterexample that this one was all about paying off things that had been put on the shelf. And the episode itself did not carry its own weight in the season. So yeah, I think what I've learned from this is to, it has doubled down my skepticism for anything that Lower Decks has in the past and will in the future say, well, we're not going to tell you the answer just yet. That's going to come back later. I think, <laughs> I think I'm, I am no longer going to be excited about that. And for me, the biggest example of that is that we have another Boimler out there hatching plans with section 31 and that, oh, that is yet yeah. to come back. But I am, <laughs> I would just assume they forget about that as you had Rob.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it may be my disinterest it might be my my sense of whatever when it comes to Section 31, or they may have gone into my mind and manipulated me, so I did forget.
1: I wouldn't put it past them, Rob. <laughs> Anything else from this episode you wanted to call out?
0: Yeah. and Normally, we bring it up at the end of the episode, but we're bringing it up now. Massive steps forward in our story arc. So they tried to do a bait and switch, but I think the bait and switch was done better in previous episodes of we're meant to... Yeah, they've leaned heavily into the fact that it's all Badgie who's been behind this, and then at yeah, the end...
1: I I I didn't catch that until the second viewing. That mm. that uh, yes, we are led to believe it's Badgy controlling the money that are behind it all. But the reveal at the end is that actually there is a third party, and that ship was not Badgie's ship. That mysterious ship is still at large. But the thing it's doing is not destroying these people. Not in destroying. Flash of light, it's stealing their ship.
0: When it came up, I didn't go, oh, I went, yeah, I should have trusted my mind because of just the big flash. And they go, sure, there's little scraps of metal here and there, but that could be, and they're going, it's right there in plain sight. So that excited me to go, all right, that's the steps we've been making. But it's hard to get those points to be revealed at a good pace. That gimmick of having a different ship. Following the exact same procedure. Some of it worked with the with the Romulans, some of it didn't work so well with the Klingons was a bit average.
1: Yeah, I mean the Binars this week I would say didn't work. No. Sure, the Binars Bringing back the Binars was fun for us next generation fans who remember that one episode of TNG season one, memorably entitled one one zero zero one zero zero one. But the binars were barely interesting in live action when we had no idea what, what what they were about. Now the mystery of the binars is past. They were even less interesting for me. And the, the binary chattering to each other that had no kind of emotional content for us as viewers made it the least interesting of these vignettes. When I think it needed to be the most interesting in order to keep us on this roller coaster ride. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would have put the binars as the first ones in the season
0: and kept the Romulans for this week. Very much so. But, yeah, so it was good to... I think it's been a good sl- slow development of the, the nuggets of information dropped along the way.
1: Yeah, agreed. Watching Tendi make a sandcastle was fun. That turns out I did not catch it. I had to look this up because it was conspicuous that she... Enjoyed that sandcastle and that she took a handful of sand with her when she left. I was like, that's going to be something, right? She's going to throw sand in someone's face later in this episode, right? And it never came back. But it's a deep cut reference to the very first episode of this entire series, Second Contact, where she offhandedly mentions there is no sand on Orion.
0: Ah, see, there you go. Section 31 has erased that from my memory, too. (laughs) Just them...
1: I, I do hope that Fistful of Sand comes back, even if it's just like in a jar on the shelf inner quarters in some future. That would be season. lovely.
0: Yeah. Lovely to keep that reality and that flow of story arc going. But yes, that led us to talk about what will our main topic in relating to the larger world of Star Trek be. And there's only one real option. It's staring us right in the blue-lighted, secretly red-lighted face. Evil computers.
1: Evil computers, evil artificial intelligences—whatever way you want oh, to take it, Rob, I am on let's, board.
0: Let's get topical. Let's go AI. All right, sure. let's go the full AI existence. Yeah, in chronological order, we always go. Now, in my research, this is for me. This is more of a heavily early classicy type era. There's about three or four episodes of Note in the classic mm-hmm. original series of from those old scientists. But yeah, it's a bit of a deeper dive to find some more in the modern series.
1: That's a good observation, Rob. I have an early one and I have a later one, but I think it is interesting how much it has fallen off. And in part, I think I I would call that a side effect of the Borg, that the Borg are now so present in the lore, they are the artificial kind of threat, and it's hard to make an artificial intelligence antagonist that is different enough from the Borg that it's not just worth doing another Borg episode or another Borg movie or another Borg series. Yeah. In Picard season one, we had the kind of s- like evil snakes coming out of the portal at the end to destroy the universe that we were- Was that Control?
0: Was it? was, was yeah, that Control? Yeah. Mm,
1: yeah. Was it Control?
0: Or was control that from was in Discovery? Discovery. Yes.
1: And then Picard also had a similar threat at the end of its first season. So we've we've had a, a few of these kind of galaxy-ending artificial intelligences that are vague threats until the very last moment. But yeah, I, I, I would like to focus on a couple of kind of up-close and personal encounters with AI. And yeah, I think it is true to say that they, they are more frequent earlier on.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, kick us off. Where are we going to in in our original series? Is it one, two, or The Dreaded Three?
1: I have a season one original series one that I bet if you were researching this topic, I bet it did turn up as an early example for you. And this is TOS season one, episode 22, The Return of the Archons, which ah, people yes, I... will remember as the Landru episode. In this episode the Enterprise is beaming up Sulu from a kind of undercover mission, one of these early missions where they go down in local garb to investigate a culture undercover. Excellent. The cold open of this is Sulu's being chased down the street of the Paramount Backlot by men <laughs> in robes and large sticks. And just before he gets beamed up from his emergency call, which takes a suspiciously long time. They hadn't figured out how quick the transporters can work this early in TOS. (laughs) He calls for help, then closes his communicator. And he's there with another crew member. And the other crew member's like, we got to run. They're going to get us. And Sue's like, no, if we move, they won't beam us up. And the other crew member freaks out and runs off. But it is a good 30 seconds to a minute before they can manage to energize the transporter in response to Sulu's emergency call.
0: That is early days. Wow. Okay. So
1: yeah, he gets zapped by one of these lawgivers. We end up discovering they're called at the last moment, just before he beams up and he materializes on the transporter pad and he is all dreamily goofy and he's talking about being one with the body and oh. about the joy and happiness of landrew and it is very mysterious and the rest of this episode is about unraveling that mystery kirk spock and mccoy and some security officers who are barely named beam down to the planet also undercover in order to try to get to the bottom of this It is a patchily written episode, and it it works as much in its favor as to its detriment, that there are some things that are barely explained in this episode. And that is good in that it trusts the audience to make assumptions and tell their own story, fill in those gaps in the story. In the end, this is the first famous time that Kirk... Causes a computer to destroy itself by using logic against it. Ah, he and Spock eventually confront this computer that is calling itself Landru face to face, or or <laughs> face screen to, to face, face to large computer box with brink- blinking lights that takes up most of a room, and. Landru explains that Landru was actually the name of the original leader of this planet 6000 years ago, but as he was dying, Landru did not want to leave the planet untended, and so as its benevolent dictator, what he did was he built a computer and put his intelligence mm-hmm. into the computer to become the caretaker of the planet. And the computer As computers do in Star Trek, took it a little too far, went a little too logical (laughs) with it, and decided that the best way to ensure the health of the planet and the local populace was to remove all of their passions, all of their creativity, all of their problematic emotions, and to put these humanoid creatures into the control of the computer. And all they do is smile and walk slowly and greet each other and talk like a strange, it's an interesting dialect. A sample of this is when they are first being greeted, Kirk and crew are asking if there's a place they can stay the night. And when the locals says to the other one, your daddy can put them up, can he? And they have these little turns of phrases. And it's only in a couple of scenes that this kind of broken English is used. But it's an early example of, yeah, the whole galaxy speaks English thanks to the Universal Translator. But sometimes it's a kind of a weird alien English. And I thought Ah, that was interesting too. Anyway, yeah. climax of this episode where Kirk says, Landru, your prime directive is to protect the body and you are harming the body. So you know what you have to do. And the computer shoots smoke and sparks and then destroys itself. It is somewhat anticlimactic by modern Star Trek standards. At the time, it would have been this revolutionary science fiction story idea that would have had us bowled over. But watching it all these years later, it's funny how perfunctory it is. Like, literally, the computer destroys itself. Kirk and Spock turn to each other. There are like locals in the room who are aghast at what has just happened. Their God has just died. They have never (laughs) thought for themselves in their entire lives. And they don't know what to do to each other. Kirk and Spock look at each other and start making jokes like, wow, man, these people are going to have their hands full figuring out what to do for themselves, right? Anyway, Kirk to Enterprise, beam us up. And they literally do not say a word to the locals. They destroy the computer, turn around, make a couple of jokes, and beam up. It is the original (laughs) example of Starfleet making a complete mess of a local society and then peace out right at the end of the episode.
0: Yeah, Prime Directive, what's that? (laughs) Oh my God.
1: There is a good back and forth about the Prime Directive where Spock says, you can't destroy that computer. And Kirk says, the Prime Director refers to living growing societies do you think that's what this is and th- the matter is settled there but at least they give some lift service to it
0: oh exactly and that justifies why they just completely ghosted <laughs> the actual <laughs> inhabitants of the planet who they have now destroyed their society forever just go yeah we thought about it we talked about it for a little bit and now it can go Jeez.
1: yeah the computer is surprisingly up for a chat. Like throughout this episode, it is this looming, scary force that works through these speechless lawgivers that point hollow tubes at you and rob you of your self determination. And it is all very foreboding. But then finally, when they find the computer, it's answering questions, it's up for a chat, it's ready for a logic full debate, and in the end, is willing to destroy itself for the good of the body.
0: Of course, yeah you beat it with logic. So what else can you do? It's such a it's such a, a trope of sci-fi. One of my yeah. favorite Doctor Who stories, again, me branching out in other franchises, is a John Pertwee story, my favorite Doctor, called The Green Death. And the big reveal at the end is that the boss, the person in charge and behind all this is a computer that fills an entire room. And yeah, he, again, the Doctor, just like Kirk, defeats it by using logic or wordplay and childish phrases and gimmicks and stuff like that to short circuit the system. Ah, The evil computer can be so easily defeated. Yeah, I will say I think
1: this is the first evil computer in Star Trek.
0: I was looking at modern stuff, but my schedule halted me from really doing a deep dive into it. So I've gone with something i have seen and something that heralded in star trek on the big screen we're going to be talking about vija from star trek the motion picture
1: of course
0: voyager 6 a made-up probe sent out
1: there's still time rob there's still time
0: yeah there is still time we haven't sent out a voyager probe for a long time but we could do it again yeah so at that point voyager probes were sent out into space and so they Extrapolated on that, that the sixth one traveled for so far, was actually discovered by this mysterious civilization based on purely technological beings, like AI, as it were. That's never mentioned, obviously. And they try with their infinite knowledge and intelligence to decipher this rudimentary basic signal and messaging of what Voyager was trying to pass on to any possible life forms out there. And of course they protect the ship and send it home and w- without fully understanding the basicness of its purpose and send it back protected. And of course wipes out anything in its path and it's up to Kirk and the Enterprise in very beige outfits and acting like they didn't really want to be there to solve the problem. And so how, how technology and humanity can work together and how they can connect in more ways than one of course star trek the
1: motion picture does not have a spotless record there are a lot of people who say it's the movie to skip if you're going to watch your star trek movies
0: i think it's a bit cruel
1: i agree i think it is underrated and especially with the recent remastering in 4k You can stream it online. If you've got Paramount Plus, you can watch it for free. And it looks better than it has ever looked before. They fixed the vast majority of the problems that plagued that picture, which were largely schedule and budgetary and a special effects company that was in over its head. The movie looks and moves better than it has ever before. And so if you've never seen it, it's definitely worth a watch.
0: Yes, and this 4K one that is on Paramount Plus is also available in physical media. It's the yep. director's cut. Yeah. So there was the original theatrical version, there was an extended version that was released, but this is the, the definitive director's cut, much like, yes. uh, Ridley Scott's final cut of Blade Runner. This is one that everyone goes, this is what Robert Wise, of course, the famous, uh, iconic director of The Day the Earth Stood Still and many other great films, uh, who yeah. to direct this.
1: I say all this, I heap all this praise on the movie and encourage you to watch it because I'm about to spoil the plot of that movie. So if you haven't (laughs) seen it, please pause and take a minute. But what V'ger, what we learn about V'ger in the end is that was that Voyager 6 probe that encountered a machine planet. Which we have never heard referenced again in Star Trek. Never again. No. If you were to try to pick what that could be that we already know about in Star Trek now, like there's nothing so close as the Borg out there. Like you could almost imagine that V'ger is the the result of the Borg modifying Voyager 6 and sending it back. But it is not deliberately sent back on a destructive mission, it is sent back in search of its creator yes gene roddenberry and star trek at this time and largely throughout the movies had this fascination with the creator and with god and where does religion meet science fiction and what are creation myths in a world of science and logic
0: it's a very big part of 1960s sci-fi like it's explored in planet of the apes and many other whether it be the twilight zone as well or the outer limits stuff like that that connection with technology and belief and connected with a higher power as well yes can they coexist?
1: Yeah so in Voyager 6, a machine is modified by an intelligent planet or race of machines to go in search of its creator, it expects to find a machine. But what it finds mm-hmm. is Earth populated by these carbon units that must be sterilized in order to try to find its creator. So at the climax of this story, Kirk has to try to convince this machine that its creator is actually human. And the, the best way he can figure out to do that is to sacrifice his XO decker to the cause. Yep. And he, Decker doesn't seem to mind at all because Viger is embodied by a very attractive lady at that point
0: in the movie, and she has no hair on her head, and all his <laughs> hair stands on end.
1: That's ironically.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the the Borg are a creation that is quite robotic, mechanical, but they cannot exist without yeah carbon units, or they are the absolute definition of, of a cybernetic race. In fact, even in, we get that in Picard season three, that case of we are at the end of we're desperate. We don't have any more units. We don't have any more things to assimilate. So they're Mm -hmm. dying out unless they have that. This is fascinating because it is an existence, a a race that is entirely mechanical. It's such a wonderful mythological ideal in the the film. It feels that way with the way they talk about it's beautifully written beautifully yeah, yeah. written about a race of machines yeah. and they don't even think about, yeah, as you said, they're just carbon units. They, they exist in a world where all they think about is the mechanical and to look for the mechanical creator of them.
1: It's a nice big idea. If you're a fan of the Voyager probes and NASA as I am, it is a little discouraging that All the Voyager probes famously have a gold record attached to them and a plaque that has a a drawing of a man and a woman. And it's supposed to say, here we are, and this is what we look like. We are carbon units. Come and find us. Uh, And apparently, uh, V'ger did not bother to read the manual. It was all
0: scorched, and so even it couldn't read Voyager (laughs) properly, so it was just (laughs) V'ger. So the gold record might have been picked up by Ferengi. Uh, Of Um, course. Yeah. And, yeah, and they would have taken <laughs> the picture as well. That would have been their version of titillation, possibly. Well,
1: yeah, know. the ladies naked on the plaque, so it would have fit right in as home decor among the friends.
0: Exactly. We could retcon <laughs> this as much as we want. So, yeah, they're not, in the purest sense, evil. They're coming from a place of really binary thought process. Uh-huh. But the actions they do are quite callous in, in how they have no emotions at all and the potential they have to wipe out civilizations and just the fact that they have so much power and like how it just you know kilometers of protection just imagine if this species come back at full force this is just a probe being protected it's a fascinating concept that we have never returned to because maybe it's too big and too immense and too powerful and too deadly
1: One of the two cruel nicknames for Star Trek, the motion picture given to it by its critics was Star Trek, the motionless picture. There are some very long, slow scenes, as was the style at the time. But (laughs) another of the titles that it's been given over the years is Where Nomad Has Gone Before. That is a reference to Nomad, which is another evil robot in Star Trek that appeared in the original series episode The Changeling, which is season two, episode eight.
0: What a segue!
1: In The Changeling, the Enterprise happens upon a probe in space that calls itself Nomad and it is an intelligent robot. They bring it on board the ship. It has a look around. It tries to make sense of these carbon units and then it decides its job is to sterilize the enterprise of the carbon units in order to uh, remove the infestation from the ship, which is obviously the important mechanistic presence here. And the crew has to temporarily incapacitate Nomad, then they throw it in the transporter room and beam it out to nowhere. Um, (laughs) But the fact that this is so similar a story to the motion picture is the main criticism that I've heard about that movie is that (laughs) at the height of The Changeling, Spock mind melds with Nomad and tells the story of Nomad encountering an alien space probe, which it calls Tanru. And Tanru is on a mission to sterilize something. And that gets mixed up with Nomad, which is an Earth probe's mission to collect biological samples. And that becomes sterilized biological samples, which is Um, the bad thing that Nomad tries to do in this episode.
0: That's the worst possible combination.
1: Really, when you watch them side by side, it is blatant that they went <laughs> we need a story for a movie what's a good one that we can tell again
0: i love with both of those titles you've got the motionless picture which is clearly from a cinema file reviewer who's mm. steeped in cinema history and yeah. then you've got where nomad has gone before and i'm going <laughs> and as you've just explained that is pure star trek fans going look at how clever we are Bless yeah
1: him. that's right yeah, not a bad episode, The Changeling. I think I would recommend both The Motion Picture and The Changeling for rewatches. They're both a good time. It is a shame that they are so similar to each other. Maybe to, don't watch them back to back until unless you really like your evil computer stories, because they are very similar. But it's fun that they're both reasonably good and they're both shockingly similar. Well done. I was not planning to talk about The Changeling, so I will take us to one last example, which is... I wonder
0: if it's the episode I wanted to watch, and uh, I'm Ooh. interested to hear. Is it from the original series? It is not. Hey. Oh, okay. Wh- I will have which to Which one did you ex- have in mind? I might. I wanted to explore The Ultimate Computer.
1: Oh, yeah. I think we've talked about it once before, and uh, it's a pretty good one. That's the one where uh, the Enterprise is used for training exercises, where they and war hook games. it up to the yeah. M- M5... Multitronic unit. But yeah, Dr. Daystrom is on board. He has created is the M5 Multitronic unit and he hooks it up to the Enterprise and he's like, this is autopilot. It's intelligent autopilot and it will make Starfleet crews obsolete. I think we talked about it when uh, Lower Decks did this with its automated starships. Yes. And eventually it goes rogue and it does not understand that it is all a training exercise. And when the... When it accidentally <laughs> destroys a real starship full of people and they try to unhook it from the enterprise, it decides to defend itself against these humans that are trying to destroy it. So yeah, it's a good one for sure.
0: Great stuff in there. Like it's originally written by a guy, Lawrence Wolfe, who was a mathematician, never wrote anything before or after. It was heavily rewritten by DC Fontana. Daystrom was of course played by William Marshall who went on to famously play Blackula. You got it. (laughs) Um, And there's great stories about behind the scenes where Marshall towered, literally physically towered over Shatner. And Shatner uh, did not want to be shown as Kirk as being physically weak and short. Boxes were brought in. Or Marshall always had to sit down so that Kirk could be either above him. Great little stories like that.
1: I'm going to have to go through my archival books and see if there's a picture of, of Bill Shatner standing <laughs> on an Apple box anywhere to
0: be had. So yes, that is an episode for me to go back to.
1: Yeah, it's a classic. Very memorable in my mind because you know I'm a fan of starships. There are several shots of three Constitution-class ships hanging in space together as part of nice. the uh, games that they're doing. And just that that seeing multiple federation starships on screen at one time that was revelatory at the time it made starfleet feel big in a way that it never had before
0: and it'd be great to watch it with the episodes that are on paramount plus we're not being sponsored by them at all but with the new special effects as well yeah, to yeah. see oh it's commonplace now like D Space nine you've got with the later seasons you've got klingons and romulans and ferengi and all type of ships coming in all over the place stopping in a torak But, yeah, this would have been a revolutionary episode of going, look, this is the potential It's broadening it out even further.
1: Yeah. No, my episode that I'll take us to is way out in Voyager. And this is Star Trek Voyager Season 2, Episode 13, entitled Prototype. And in the cold open of this episode, Voyager rescues from the vacuum of space a, a humanoid robot whose power supply is failing. And about half of this episode is Belana Torres and Harry Kim working together to try to revive this. That They're not even sure if it's intelligent or if it actually walks and talks. It's just this inert humanoid shape lying on a table in engineering. The power supply is not compatible with anything that Voyager has on board and Balana talks to the doctor and comes up with the idea of a transfusion and yada yada. They manage to wake up the robot. And what the robot wants more than anything else in the world is for Balana Torres to help him repopulate his species. He is a member of a fading, dying race whose creators no longer exist. They died off millennia ago. And the surviving robots are failing one by one. They cannot figure out how to reproduce themselves or to recreate their own technology. And uh, so they need an engineer. And B'lana Taurus is excited to help, but it is against Janeway's better judgment to assist a species you only just met with repopulating themselves. And it turns out Janeway's instincts are on the money on this one. Of course
0: they are. Of course they are. We know Janeway. Come on.
1: Do you remember this one at all?
0: I'm uh, looking it up right now and I've, I've got vague memories of it. It's, it's quite an um, iconic in the simplicity of the design.
1: Yes, the actor in the silver mask and suit is very memorable. And that's yeah. that's what brought this one back to my memory. I didn't remember what happened, what these androids were about. I remembered this inscrutable expressionless silver face and going, did they turn out to be good or evil? I can't <laughs> quite remember. And so I went and looked it up and sure enough, it was, it was a switcheroo where they seem completely innocent.
0: Fight and switch.
1: When Janeway decides, no, we will not be helping this race to repopulate itself, that would be a violation of the Prime Directive, interestingly enough. Yeah. And Balana is frustrated but decides to obey her captain's order. She delivers the news to this android who promptly kidnaps her takes her back to his ship and (laughs) forces her to take on this engineering project in which she is ultimately successful. What she discovers is that every one of these androids' power supplies is uniquely coded to power only that android. And so it is almost like copy protection. It's like they were deliberately (laughs) designed not to be able to reproduce. Interesting That should sound some warning bells. (laughs) Balana, of course, is an excellent engineer and manages to bypass the copy protection and create a generic power supply. And she creates a new android and it wakes up and asks for its programming. And they celebrate for a few sweet seconds until another android ship shows up and opens fire. And it turns out that there are at least two factions of these androids. (laughs) They are at war with each other. Giving one of them the ability to reproduce and not the other one would be upsetting the balance of this war. That is a textbook side effect of violating the Prime Directive.
0: It's right there. First page. First page of the textbook.
1: But the final uh, shoe that drops in this episode is it is revealed that both of these factions of androids used to have organic creators who were at war with each other. And they made these androids to fight their war as a proxy. And in the end, these two organic races or factions that were at war with each other, they made peace. They decided to call off the war. And the androids said, no, sir, that's not my programming. And if you're going to get in the way of this war, we will destroy you. So the androids killed their creators in order to fight their war everlasting. And Voyager very nearly... (laughs) contributed to one side of it them winning.
0: Silly Balana.
1: Yeah, silly Balana. Balana is rescued. She manages to destroy the prototype at the last moment and Voyager uh hightails it out of there.
0: There you go. That's a good one. And that's that's classic sci-fi stuff in there as well. Of course oh, yeah the, the creation killing its creator. Something that appears good but is actually evil behind the facade, all that classic stuff, it just yums it up. That's what that is the meat and potatoes of of the sci fi writer right there.
1: Without looking, I bet you can guess who directed this
0: Jonathan Frakes.
1: Yes, Jonathan Frakes directed this.
0: (laughs) Our beards are connected. I've got a psychic Uh beard all connection.
1: Yes. And this is from that early era of Voyager where it hadn't found the Borg, it hadn't found Seven of Nine. No. It was too early to make meaningful progress towards returning home. So this was Voyager at the height of it at the height of its first incarnation, when Voyager was a story about an isolated ship on a journey that it was never going to complete. And what adventures did it have on the way? What self-contained adventures would it have along the way? So yeah, it's a nice nice example of the original plan for Voyager, what that would feel like when it was successful week to week.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like taking advantage of them being in this new quadrant where you literally have no idea about you don't know, the know the species.
1: you don't know that there there is a war that happened here and those robots are not to be trusted
0: <laughs> if you find one you put it back <laughs> and get away as quickly as possible. you hightail it out of there
1: yeah yeah it's a good one yeah absolutely that's prototype there are no doubt, many more examples of evil artificial intelligences and computers to be discovered. And I, I'm going to suggest, Rob, that we leave them on the shelf. I'm sure we will have another excuse to talk about evil computers sometime in the future.
0: I suggest putting them in the shelf and then closing up and sealing it up with all the other ones. And they can communicate amongst themselves, but they can Very stay good, hidden yes. within. i just realized, so Daystrom is in charge of creating something deadly and dangerous that can wipe out everything. And they name you noticed that, did you? It is
1: kind of weird. That it's
0: weird. The
1: ultimate computer ends with Daystrom being carted off as a burbling madman, going, "My, my child, my computer! You can't unplug it!" And then they name an institute after him, where they store the evil computers. Let it not be said that the that Starfleet and the Federation are not without a sense of irony.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, They must be self-aware of that, self-conscious of what they've just done. Yeah, it's super weird. It's it's weird. Okay, we're putting it out there. Okay, I'm sure we're not the first. Maybe Doctor Daystrom
1: had a brother who's perfectly well-adjusted and went on to make lots of important contributions to science.
0: A twin brother, Lord Daystrom. (laughs) Prodigy is back.
1: Prodigy is back. I am, uh, you know, nothing's going to change the fact that this is a frustrating state of affairs, that Star Trek has decided to split off one of its excellent series and put it uh, up for sale. And uh, I think you called it that Netflix would be picking it up, didn't you, Rob?
0: Yeah, I I had an inkling they would. It's like they've disowned a child. There's so much within Star Trek. And this is the one that they draw their their line in the sand. It's Mm. weird. It's another weird thing. It's another weird thing. I don't know why why Star Trek, Paramount have done it, but yeah, we get season one starting very soon this year on Netflix. That's 2023, if any of you are finding this in the future. Mm. And season two will start in early 2024. Which
1: cements, I think, the rest of this year being pretty vacant of Star Trek, that we are going to finish off our run of Lower Decks Season 4 here and then go into a little bit of a drought into the end of the year before uh, Discovery premieres early in the new year.
0: Yes, we'll have a bit of a break in between.
1: I am really looking forward to Season 2 of Prodigy. The level of difficulty for what they are attempting in that story is pretty high. So I can't Um, wait to see. It may be a dumpster fire, but it will be (laughs) entertaining to watch, whether it is because it's an amazing story that is not to be missed, or it is an amazing mess not to be missed.
0: Yeah, same here. And I love the fact that Kate Mulgrew publicly on all her social medias made a statement directly to all the fans and supporters of Prodigy. It was very heartfelt because it to have... They're not only denying a portion of Star Trek that's been criticized with some hardcore Star Trek fans for going, being directed too much at kids, but that's Ooh. a direct criticism to, yeah, boo to them. I I bite my thumb at thee, but to openly turn down a show that has been such a goldmine for Kate Mulgrew mm. and such a tribute to her and her work. Yeah, they're not real fans if they're denying a show that is showing off Kate Mulgrew so brilliantly.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything you say, but for the interest of science, I'm going to provide a contrasting viewpoint that I think... excellence. What this state of affairs tells us is that Prodigy did not find an audience. True. And it's going to have a second chance to find an audience on Netflix. Perhaps there are many more families with kids who have Netflix than families with kids who have Paramount+. Plus. And so maybe it will find a groundswell of audience following that that justifies a third season. But I feel like they, they have an uphill battle to fight here with season two. That yes. If, if season... I don't think people are going to start with season two and be captivated. What it really depends on is, does season one find a new audience on Netflix when it goes live here at the end of the year? And if it does, that could... Lead Netflix to order a third season, but I think the jury is very much out on that at the moment. The most likely outcome in my mind is that season two is the final season.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's. I think that's the reality, especially Netflix, because they are so um harsh. If they do yeah. not get a big spike in yeah. viewership or new membership, they will. Yeah. They will not. It needs the to bush, go viral.
1: I- People need to start posting those prodigy TikToks right away.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does prove a lot of the criticism from some of the hardcore fans was Star Trek shouldn't have a show directed towards children because what made it so special as Star Trek, it just directed itself at a high level and didn't, as in their words, talk down in some ways. And so the children found it because they didn't feel as if they were being patronized to or talked down to. I, I get that. But after we watch it, it's and it took me a while to get into it as well when Star Trek for kids, but watching it, I'm going, no, 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 this is solid Star Trek. It's got a banger theme tune. It's got a, a great new approach to how we view the Federation from the outsider's point of view. So it's going to be interesting to see those outsiders within the working of it. And as I have said, Kate Mole grew given the second life that she deserved within the franchise that she brought so much quality to.
1: Here, here. Let's hope the streaming gods are kind to Prodigy on Netflix.
0: Let's knock on all the Romulan wood and hope for the best.